from Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is. This is. This is. This is War News Radio. Hello, I'm Sophia. And I'm Zane, and this is War News Radio. It's been 10 years since the 2011 Tunisian Revolution, also known as the Jasmine Revolution, which sparked a wave of protests against autocratic regimes in the Middle East and North Africa. These popular uprisings came to be known as the Arab Spring. In Tunisia, these protests brought the 23-year dictatorial rule of President Zine al-Abidin Ben Ali to an end, putting in place a new democratic government. However, a decade after Ben Ali was deposed, Tunisians are once again protesting government corruption, a dire economic situation, and police brutality, among many other things. To understand why Tunisians are taking to the streets in 2021, we spoke with two Tunisian citizens whose lives have been directly impacted by the revolution and the current protests. We interviewed Gaia Ben Mubarak, a former student activist and journalist for the online English-Tunisian news source Mishkal. Here, she shares her motivations for becoming a journalist. I felt a sort of responsibility for me as a Tunisian to share news in English. So if you follow my Twitter, you can see that I've tried my best effort to report incidents taking place from a Tunisian person instead of just allowing uh, the rhetoric to be kind of monopolized by uh, foreign media outlets which us Tunisians were not always a fan of. We also interviewed Nadi Mansorqui, a high schooler and activist in Tunisia. Although young at the time, Nediman still remembers her experience of the 2011 revolution. The Tunisian revolution happened when I was, I think, nine or ten, but I, I was pretty, you know, aware and of what was happening. I was in Gasrin, so the, the revolution sparked in a city called Sidi Bouzid. In December of 2010, a street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire to protest the corrupt government officials who confiscated his merchandise and demanded bribes from him. He soon became a symbol of the injustices Tunisians faced, and from his small rural hometown of Sidi Bouzid, the revolution spread across the country. Sidi Bouzid, as a scene, it was pretty similar to the city I was brought up in, in Gasserine. They are even really close to each other. So Gasserine and Sidi Bouzid were one of the very first cities to kind of like lead up the protests and the demonstrations of the revolution. Most of what you see, you'll see about how bad the demonstrations were. I had neighbors in my own street who were killed by, by the police forces brutally when I was young. And uh, because my, also my dad was very politically involved I, I kind of, you know, remember a lot of things from like the perspective of the people who are anti the regime, who really just did not like Ben Ali, but they were suffering against the regime, especially that my dad was working with the labor union, which was not the very like best friend with Ben Ali and his clan. There were a lot of interesting moments, but it was only when I started to kind of, you know, become older that I started to grasp what, what actually happened. So I remember moments, I remember breathing tear gas 
in our house because like when the protest happened, I lived kind of close to where a lot of things happened, kind of like close to downtown. So when the police forces would be trying to control the riots, they would be using a lot of tear gas. And there were a lot of times where the tear gas cans, they would end up like in our backyard or something and then we would have to breathe them. So it was very interesting to kind of grow up in that context. And it kind of pushed me to be more politically aware. And therefore, I grew to be more politically active. For the last decade, the months of January and February have carried special significance in Tunisia, with annual upticks in demonstrations marking each year since the watershed winter of 2011. On the 10-year anniversary of Ben Ali's fall, mass protests are breaking out once again. Gaia explains. So, this period specifically, which marked the 10th anniversary of the revolution, was specific because the country has been struggling from the dire economic situation with stagnant unemployment rates and with pandemic situation which worsened the lives of many Tunisians. And in addition to that, we are seeing a rise in the police state. So we're seeing a rise not only in terms of having a difficult social situation, but we're also seeing a decrease and kind of a backup in terms of freedoms, which is one other main aspect of the revolution. These tensions have reached a boiling point 10 years after the revolution. There were two marking events. The first event being there was protests by some football fans, and there were about 300 people got arrested. And most of those people were minors. Those minors were taken to a police division in Tunis, and they were actually held up from 3 p.m. in the afternoon till midnight. And they were held up in this like small square in the cold. So they were kept there, and they were not allowed to speak with their families. They were not also allowed to have access to lawyers. And it's already illegal to be arresting a bunch of minors that way. And the second incident is that on the 14th of January, the exact date of the 10th anniversary of President Bernardi uh, in the country, the government decided a four-day lockdown, supposedly as part of the COVID protocol and because of the rise of cases. But obviously people did not see that, and they proceeded as a political decision. And people started basically protesting at night in different popular neighborhoods in, in Tunis and also popular neighborhoods throughout the country. The protests were sparked by specific events, but underlying them is a widespread frustration about the stagnant economy and sustained unemployment. Those youth definitely are suffering from long years of unemployment and feeling despair in terms of knowing what they're going to do next. So these people have no jobs opportunities. They do not, even when they try to work, to do basic stuff. Sometimes the police actively hinder people's jobs and livelihoods. Gaia shares how people she's interviewed have experienced this. I talked to this vegetable and fruit vendor, and he told me that whenever he tried to actually do um, whatever job he had, the police would always like stand up and try to hinder him from doing his work. Even doing these minor jobs, the government or the system would find a way to prevent them from doing it. In addition to a system that makes it difficult for businesses to thrive, the COVID-19 pandemic has also economically hamstrung Tunisians, as Nuttyman describes. With the pandemic, the government had imposed really severe restrictions that truly hit the middle and the lower classes of the country. 
people were not having enough food. The tourism sector in the country, which was the second biggest sector in the economy, was completely shut down. Planes were grounded. We were not having any tourists come in the country. So a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot of people were not able to feed their families. So that amount of rage that is shared amongst the people in the lower echelons of the social hierarchy led up to that protest that immediately the Tunisian media chose to label riot. Gaia also disagrees with the government's label of riots and views the protesters in a more nuanced light. They were not just like robbing banks or whatever, but people just went into public spaces, supermarkets, and got food. So from that, you can see that there is definitely a social component to it. People do not have food. When I went to some popular neighborhoods, people were telling me that if you come around after 6 p.m., you would find people picking up food from trash to take back to their families. So we are at that state where we have Tunisian citizens who need to go to restaurants trash to pick up food leftovers in order for them to bring food to their families at the end of the day. So we have the situation taking place, but instead we have the uh, officials calling them when they protest looters and talking badly about them, trying to portray them as people just bringing disorder to the country and forgetting about the real issues is that now in 2021, Tunisia still has people that cannot cover the bare minimum. In the backdrop of the protests, there's also an ongoing political feud between Prime Minister Mashishi, who has proposed a cabinet reshuffling, and President Syed, who refuses to confirm the new nominees despite Parliament voting on them. So the political turmoil taking place is, I would say it's a reflection of what's happening in the country overall. The President of the Republic, since he does not agree on the names that were included in this reshuffle, who are uh, linked to corruption and who other NGOs alerted to the fact that some of the names proposed by uh, Prime Minister Shishi were actually names of corrupt people who have previous corruption charges. However, the president is using whatever he has within his jurisdictions, still trying to block this because he does not feel like this government is legitimate in any way with the names that were proposed. This is just like one aspect of the political crisis uh, in Tunisia because definitely the socio-economic situation is what pushed these protests to get out. And if there is like one aspect about politicians is the fact that Tunisians are not satisfied with the performance of the successive governments in the country. Protests during the day have focused on the political debacle, among other things. While nightly protests are also in response to corruption and socioeconomic decline, after dark, the demonstrations emphasize deeper frustrations with law enforcement. During the day, we have protests that are more organized and more politicized because it has lots of opposition activists and civil society activists that have like a better understanding of the system, list, like a list of specific demands direct to decision makers. The people like protesting during the night at some point, they just kept protesting because of the random arrest campaigns. So they were protesting for the release of their friends and demanding the release of their family members and denouncing the violence committed by the police against them. And the fact that the police is just being vicious towards them, just belonging to that specific popular neighborhood and for being from a specific social class because you would not find these incidents taking place in rich neighborhoods. 
Nettyman echoes these thoughts. I was born and raised in another city in more like in the western side of Tunisia called Gasserine. If you've read a little bit about uh, what has been happening in the protests, you probably would have noticed that Gasserine was one of the epicenters of these protests because it's kind of one of these less privileged areas in Tunisia. Unfortunately, we have this massive economic divide, geographically speaking, in this country. So we have regions that have more access to economic opportunities in my hometown where like they don't. So like the unemployment rate is pretty high. The poverty rate is also pretty high. It kind of suffers from a lot of social issues. Gaia and Nadiman share similar thoughts about the need for the protests. Gaia says of those protesting. They do know how the system works. And they know they will not probably be heard in traditional ways. So the solution is always to protest and to stand up to the system in whatever way they find adequate. And again, we had really bad problems with corruption. We had corruption before the revolution with Ben Ali, but we knew where it was coming from. We knew that it was Ben Ali and his family that did all of that corruption. But after the revolution, we kind of realized that the corruption is even worse because it's not just one Ben Ali. It's a lot of Ben Ali's altogether. A lot of different families are controlling the government. But the normal average Tunisian that belongs to the middle class, who is powerless, who doesn't have rich friends, who doesn't go to rich bars, they don't have enough power to kind of make the change in their country or even force the people they elected to make decisions for their better interest. A broad constituency has felt the need to make their voices heard, and there's great diversity among those protesting. The one thing about the January protests was that it was not one political entity being in the streets and presenting whatever ideology they had. We were literally people from all walks of life, mostly youth, so people my age group, And we all came to it with different perspectives. The reason why I was there was that I thought it was completely unacceptable the way police reacted to the riots that were initially legitimate. I thought the way the government responded to that was wrong. And I was there to stop it in a way or another or to show them that we disagree with them simply. A lot of people were there for different reasons. Some people thought because it happened in January, January 14th in Tunisia is pretty symbolic because it was the anniversary of the revolution. Because it happened in January, they thought it could be kind of like a second revolution or whatever, because they wanted to kind of overthrow the government. So different people had different opinions about what they thought the protests would lead to. Nadiman describes what specifically motivated her to begin protesting. It was only when we started to see a very, very hard and authoritarian language being conveyed to the people in the news and the media channels and the government calling the protesters and the demonstrators rioters and that they should be thrown in jail and then they should be treated severely and whatever. And it kind of like almost reminded us of how severe the Ben Ali regime was because when he was in power, the first thing he did When he saw that people were taken over the streets, he just took out the police and he ordered them to kill whoever stood in their hands. And that's why we ended up having a lot of people dead in the 2011 revolution. 
when we saw this happen, we saw a lot of people getting arrested illegally. Um, a lot of kids, basically minors, 16, 17, getting thrown in jail for either going to the supermarket after the curfew to bring something for their mom or like really silly things. They were thrown in jail and tried after three days. We just realized that that was pretty screwed up and that government need to stop. And that was the first time I took over this street. Even though conditions for dissidents in Tunisia have improved since Ben Ali's authoritarian government was deposed 10 years ago, those who voice their discontent with the country's new leadership still face repressive policies at every level of the legal system. So there was a massive campaign of arrests that mainly targeted people in popular neighborhoods. And it was super random because whoever they found on the street or even in their homes that matched the category of youth and of these people that they perceive as the people causing disorder. They just grabbed them without any evidence, without anything, and they just like made up the same accusations towards uh, all of them. Some of the people that were arrested actually had evidence that the police assaulted them, that the police barged into their homes without any, any official subpoena from the prosecutor or whatever that the police actually took them in their pajamas while they were not doing anything and they were not actually caught in the act of looting or the act of stealing or causing disturbance. Young people in Tunisia, most of whom grew up during the social and political upheaval surrounding the Jasmine Revolution, have been at the vanguard of the recent protests. Youth are marginalized economically and politically because many young adults lack access to employment and because they are highly targeted by the police. In some cases, police have been known to physically assault minors unprovoked, as Gaia tells us. I also talked to this woman whose son was a 16-year-old. He was playing in front of their house in a nearby area, and the police literally came in and just like kidnapped him and took him into the van. He obviously was a kid, so they did not knock on the door and talk to his mom, whatever. They just took him to the police office, and when the mother reached the police office, she said that she saw them kicking him like a ball inside the police station. This kind of story is an emblem of the societal disempowerment this generation's young and working-age Tunisians are feeling. Our politicians are not listening to the biggest demographic age group in the country and completely overlooking their needs. A third of Youth in Tunisia do not have access to employment. They suffer from really, really bad economic situations because of how horrible our system has become. We suffer from a massive rent economy. We don't allow people my age to start their own businesses easily. The whole lack of employment opportunity is just like the biggest issue here. One way that young people across the world have found to make their voices heard is through social media. Part of what made the 2011 protests so distinctive was their use of platforms like Facebook to organize. 2011 was the first time we, we learned to use social media as a medium to kind of rally a lot of people who share the same idea into one place, and that was through the use of Facebook. Before in Ben Ali's time, we didn't even have YouTube in Tunisia. It was banned. Before, the Ben Ali regime held a tight grip on the flow of information. 
This novel use of social media allowed Tunisians who were fed up with their government to connect with one another across regional and economic divides in unprecedented ways. People were on tuned in on their Facebook accounts looking up what's going on in other regions of the country. Because if you turn on the TV, you know that whatever you're going to be consuming, it's just sponsored by the state. And that was the first time we learned to use social media as a main medium to make social and political change. But for the recent protests, it even went even bigger. So the protesters were posting stories on Facebook, on TikTok, on Instagram, on, on all sorts of social media accounts to make the movement heard. And that's why we saw that because they started from poorer districts, they made their way to like the main street or even in front of the parliament, the Tunisian parliament. Facebook and other social media platforms helped give rise to the 2011 revolution and the current protests. But now they are also being leveraged by a government intent on preventing another revolution. The police is also using those platforms. For example, police unions have lots of Facebook pages where they tend to single out specific activists and show their faces, share their personal information, share their personal pictures, even pictures of their families and try to gather as many supporters as possible to actually target them with cyberbullying campaigns and target them with lots of harassment. Nettiman recalls the story of a mutual friend who was persecuted for his activism online. He posted some posts on his Facebook about what's going on, and he was blaming the government, and he was saying something along the lines of, if you don't like it, just take over the streets and protest. Like He was trying to justify the demonstrations that were happening. In a normal democratic world, that's perfectly fine. But that one kid who was 21, he was arrested immediately and taken by the police forces. That was the moment when I realized that if we did not do something about it, the government will continue to go back to that authoritarian way of ruling. Even as she watches fellow demonstrators face violence and repression at the hands of police, Nariman continues to attend protests. The first time I went to a protest, like in January, I remember being kicked by a police officer for not doing anything. I was filming with my phone because that was the reason why I was going. I was filming so that I can, you know, share on Facebook so that people can share my posts and then people find out that there's actually something happening in the capital city. But there was that one police officer who looked at me and he said, no, don't film. And then I was like, yeah, but I kind of have it right, so no thanks. So, like, he literally just, like, looked at me, he ignored me, and then he just kicked me later so that I, my phone would literally fall. So that was, that was the kind of thing I saw, and I was really angry. And I've seen a lot of anger shared, but what happened to me was completely minor. I saw my best friend. The police officer just sprayed tear gas into his eyes and he was beaten by a baton stick. So when I compared that to the minor kick that I had, oh, that was fine. That was just okay. I will just carry it as a badge of honor because I know what I was doing was right and what they were doing was wrong. The pandemic has also played a role in exacerbating the pressing socioeconomic circumstances that gave rise to these protests in the first place. Placing even greater strain on disadvantaged populations, the Tunisian government has imposed extensive lockdown measures, including strict nightly curfews starting at 7 p.m. and wide-ranging restrictions on movement. These laws, which are ostensibly in place to prevent the spread of COVID-19, 
have been used to justify the undemocratic practices of Tunisia's police and legal system. This year specifically marks lots of policing that was actually consolidated with these laws that are supposedly made to be protecting people from the pandemic, but instead police were using it to actually suppress activities and to suppress people from speaking up their minds. Comparisons to pre-revolutionary times under Ben Ali have gone both ways. As Nadiman explains, while protesters are drawing disfavorable parallels to their previous government, many others have spent the last 10 years wondering if the revolution was worth the instability and economic strain that followed. There was a common sentiment, and it would be really naive to ignore it, collectively in Tunisia, that after the revolution, we thought that our lives are going to change because we've got democracy, we've got all we wanted, we got rid of the bad guys, and we just expected things to immediately shift and live in like an awesome, amazing world. And that obviously did not happen. We had a lot of problems. We had consecutive terrorist attacks happening. The political scene was completely unstable. So immediately people were just associating that level of chaos and instability, which was completely normal for a state that was rebuilding itself. They were associating that with the old times where we had Ben Ali and nobody was actually having any problems feeling safe going out late at night or something like that. So because of that kind of dichotomy, people started being more nostalgic, if I would say that correctly, to the Ben Ali regime. And and that's when you would hear a few people like, over a coffee saying that, oh, I miss when Ben Ali was here. We didn't have to, you know, worry about terrorism or whatever. But that's just, you know, the simplistic and unnuanced way of thinking about it. This story has focused on Tunisia, but several other countries, including Libya, Egypt, and Yemen, also saw a change in leadership as a result of the Arab Spring. Besides Tunisia, democratic processes started to take shape in Egypt and Libya. Neither lasted, and Libya, Yemen, and Syria are still locked in intractable civil wars. Because of Tunisia's relatively peaceful transition away from autocracy, it is widely considered the success story of the Arab Spring. I think we've succeeded so much on a lot of levels. Just because I'm here talking about the things I really want my country to improve on doesn't mean that I don't consider Tunisia a success. There were a lot of positives that we should be aware of. Personally speaking, growing up kind of 10 years living under the regime of Ben Ali and kind of seeing what my parents were, how they were dealing with it. Like, for instance, I remember going home when I was in elementary school to my mom and then making some joke about a picture of the first lady that was in our elementary school. It was silly, but then I remember my mom like very severely replying to me and saying, oh no, you should not joke about that in public at all. I remember how serious she was and these silly moments, when I compare them to when Ben Ali was gone, that they never ever happened again and I was able to express myself. Still, as both Nettiman and Gaia underscore, the fight for democracy in Tunisia is an enduring struggle. I really do not like the success criteria because talking about revolution, 10 years is not a long period. We still have a long way before achieving whatever we need to do for this country. As Tunisians, we feel like there is a long way to go. 
it's true that we are frustrated about the situation, but it's something that we always we knew that it would take us a long time for things to get better, and we're just trying our best to do that. So I really hope that people could look at Tunisia more than just did the revolution succeed or is it failed. We're War News Radio, a project of Swarthmore College. This episode was written and produced by Sophia Becker and Zane Irwin. Special thanks to Ali Abid for helping us research and interview for this piece. You can find more reporting at warnewsradio.org. Look out for more from War News Radio wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.